Good morning. Good to see everybody in the room over West Falls Church on Grace Live. Thanks for being here. It is Blue Sunday. Okay, so because of the way that blues are wired, that wasn't a blue that probably said woohoo there just a second ago. Because of the way the blues are wired, we're comfortable staying behind the scenes. We like things calm, like quiet. We're introverts, right? So I'm not going to ask you to jump up and down like the yellows did on Sanguine Sunday. I'm not going to ask you to do what we did last week. The reds are like, yeah, we're not going to do that. Just a simple nod of the head if you're blue. Like you're in an auction. That's right. I'm blue. That's all. That's all that's necessary. Hey, um, so a couple weeks ago, actually it was on Sanguine Sunday. It was on Yellow Sunday that uh, my wife went to a party for somebody who's actually been on this stage before. Her name is Hattie Jones. Hattie is a total sanguine, and she turned 100 years old. 100 years old. And my wife took a video of a piece of the party. I'd like to show you that video now. Would you please run that video? <laughs> Let's hear for the sanguines, huh? Hear for the young sanguines. Are any sanguines going to be doing that when uh, you're 100 years old? Yeah, thank you very much. That's, that, that's awesome. So my wife took that video, and then she sent it to a friend of hers who is blue. She sent it to a blue friend. You know, she's like, look at this. This is so awesome. And I want to show you the text message with the blue person sent back. The blue person said, all good till somebody breaks their hip. I saw this. You saw that. I saw this, you saw that, right? So we're all different. We all see the world in a different way. Some people are like, whoa. I'll be like, oh, you'll break your hip. Right. <clears throat> okay, before I go any farther in this, to, uh, today our young professionals, those in their 20s and 30s, are getting together at Chipotle Seven Corners. It's in between us and West Falls Church, so it's perfect. If you're in your 20s and 30s, uh, I've gotten a waiver today. They've allowed me uh, to show up. Uh, so I, I'm going to show up, and uh, after this message today, there might be some questions. So just throwing that out there, everybody is welcome as long as you're in your 20s and 30s. Okay, Chipotle, Seven Corners. I think it's in the uh, I think it's in the bulletin. The address is there. All right, who are blues? Who are blues? Let's start out this way. Who are blues? Blues are deep thinkers. They are. Blue like the deep blue sea. They're deep, deep thinkers. They like things done the right way, the right way. There's a way to do things, and then there's their way to do things. They like things done the right way. They set high standards. They set long-range goals. They have to-do lists. Does anybody here like to-do lists? Okay, great. I love to-do lists. I say to my sanguine wife, I said, let's make a to-do list. She says, we don't need a to-do list. We know exactly what to do. No, no, no. I want the list. I make lists every day. Every day. I make the night before, I make a list of what I'm doing. Actually, I make lists for days that are weeks in advance. I know what my to-do list is like three weeks from now. I know what it is. I love lists. I loved it. Boom, boom, boom. Blues are neat and tidy. Like they like things to be neat. They like things to be tidy. They do not eat in the car. Are there any blues in the room who would say, yes, it's ridiculous. Who in the world would eat in the car? You could spill stuff. Thank you very much. You don't eat in the car. Blues look at parking spaces. Not all parking spaces are equal. Some parking spaces are illogical. I can't understand when I'm riding the car with some people why they park in the parking space they're parking in. If you're, if you don't understand that today, look for somebody with a blue wristband. Oh, by the way, you noticed what wristbands are missing if you came in from the outside. I don't know what's happening at West Falls Church, but there are no blue wristbands left. 
So we must have a lot of blues. And if you don't understand what it means for a, an appropriate parking space, see somebody with a blue wristband. They'll explain what I'm saying right here, right? They have the ability to organize. Now, here's what's important. This is really important, okay? I'm a weak blue. And what I mean by I'm a weak blue is I'm barely blue. Like, it's my primary color. If you've taken the inventory, you haven't taken the inventory, please get the workbook and take it because the number matters, like if you're a 20, 22, 23, 25 plus on your primary number, that means you're really strong. I'm a 15 blue followed by red. So I'm barely blue and then red right behind it. So there are some things about me that aren't strong blue. But if you're a really strong blue, then you have this need to organize things. And here's the thing. Reds like things organized too, but they like them organized for different reasons. This is the distinction going through the study. Like, ah, yeah, I get it now. Reds like to organize for effectiveness and efficiency. They want things to work right. Blues like things organized because it brings them joy. They look at things that are neat, clean, tidy, everything's put together, and it's like, yes. Now, here's, here, here, this is going to sound really weird to you, but I'm going to put it right out there. So we were visiting some people uh, from here, church. We were having lunch at their house one day, and they were taking us a tour of their house, and they, we walked into their workroom, like where they keep their, their tools and their tape and their hammers and their nails, and right, it was a pretty big workroom. I've never seen anything that beautiful. I've never seen a workroom that, and it was nothing. There wasn't a, a piece of string out of place. Do you know what I'm saying? It was perfect. There was no dust. It was beautiful. And I walked in, and my first thought is, could I sleep here? <laughs> I, it was, I mean, it disturbed me too. But it was my reaction. Like, I, I feel like I really could sleep in this room. It is so put together. So blues love things. It brings them pure joy when things are organized great. They're, some of their qualities in the workbook, I'll just read you some of the things from the workbook, okay? They're honest. It's beautiful. If you're blue, you're honest. You're sincere. You're a great listener. You're very loyal. They're musical. I, I missed out on that one, okay? They love facts and logic. They love it. And they are self-sacrificing. Read it. Get the workbook. If you don't have the workbook, please. Right there, self-sacrifice. Sounds just like Jesus, right? Blues. Now, I was thinking, I was praying this past week, I was thinking, you know, all these temperaments, I'm studying these colors and these different temperaments. I just said, Jesus, of all these colors and temperaments, is there like, is there like one that you really love? And Jesus said, Johnny, I really love the blues. There are four biographies of the life of Jesus Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's four biographies. And last week, we talked about what was the biography that the Reds were drawn to. And we said, does anybody remember? Does anybody remember? Mark. It's the gospel of Mark. And people on Grace Live, Grace Live, we hear you. We hear you. Because a bunch of people on Grace Live said, wait a minute. We already did Yellow Sunday, and you didn't tell us what the gospel was for the Sanguines. Okay? So... Mark is for the Reds. Mark is for the Reds. Mark's for the Cholerics because Mark does everything fast. He's getting his information from Peter, and Peter's a total choleric. It's like, right to the point, forget it. We don't need all the fluff. Forget Christmas. We don't need baby Jesus and the little fleece diapers and the six-pound, six-ounce Jesus. We don't need that. Let's go straight to the point, right? And it's all about power. So what is the, what, what's the gospel for the yellows, for the sanguines? What do you think it is? What do you think? Grace Live? What do you think it is? Type something in there. Luke. Luke, you know why? Because Luke gives all the details. He loves to tell stories, long stories. Matter of fact, Luke writes Luke, and then he gets carried away, and he just starts writing the book of Acts. So it's like this, he just can't stop telling stories. And he gives us pomp and pageantry. And in Luke, Jesus Christ is the personal, personal Savior. And that appeals to our yellows. Now, what is the gospel? What is the biography for the blues? For the blues, it's Matthew. 
because of all these numbers. Yeah, three of this, five of this, 10 of this, 12 of this, all over the place. Blues love numbers. They love graphs. They love charts. And if you like tried to visualize the Matthew, right? It starts with a genealogy. If you tried to visualize it, it's all about the blues because they love charts and graphs and logic and everything just putting together, right? So there's the gospel for them. Next week, we'll talk about what's the gospel for the greens. Now, what are the, what are the weaknesses of the blues? Weaknesses is they're easily depressed. Yes, they're easily depressed, especially when life is out of order. There's too much chaos. Their standards aren't being met, right? And then they'll give you the what? The silent treatment because they're very comfortable with silence. Silence is golden. Blues work very well alone, okay? And here's my issue. I'm blue, and I work very well. I can lock myself in my office with all of my books and just be so happy. Actually, that would be a dream come true to me. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. I will never become the best version of myself working all alone. I need people. I have a meeting. I've said this before, but I have a meeting now. I didn't used to have this, but I do have a meeting now. Once a month, I get together in two separate meetings all on a Thursday to talk about the words that I will speak because I need to hear And I have come up with some great ideas because I'm working with other people to create what happens here on the stage. The words that I'll speak, and we'll talk about it. And it's made me so. So you'll never become, if you're a blue, you'll never become the best version. You're great. And I I do need to work. I need privacy. I need to work alone. I need silence. Yes, yes, yes. But I also need to balance it out that I need people in order for me to become the best version of myself. Blues are great respecters of personal space. They're the greatest respecters of personal space, right? Um, Close talkers. Do you ever see that Seinfeld episode with the close talker? I love that. Uh, I I love that, right? The guy gets like right up to his face. Like blues will never do that. They're great respecters of personal space. You come up to hug a blue and they'll stick the hand out. Yep. Back away. Okay, right? Great respecters. Now, if you want to go deeper in this, I have put on your bulletin, you'll see it on the screen. It's in the bulletin on the screen, right? It's a book called Wired That Way by Litauer, by Marita Litauer. And if you want to go deeper, there's some great stuff in it, and I'll be drawing some more things from that. But if you want a great companion book and you're just interested in more of this, I encourage you to do that. Now, let me say this. Because it's Blue Sunday, because it's Blue Sunday and blues are deep thinkers, they like to noodle on things, they like to ponder I want to say this. Ready? This is going to be really important here. There were times, not all the time, but some of the times that people walked away from conversations with Jesus saying, what? And it just churned over in their head. I mean, there's a lot of times they walked away from Jesus like, yeah, I got it. That's awesome. But they walked like Nicodemus. You must be born again. And Nicodemus said, what? What what is that? And it was all kinds of occasions. Where Jesus did, you know, you must eat my flesh. Excuse me? Okay. And you have to think, what is he really saying? We have to think deeply. We have to really think, think, think hard. And so today might be, I'm not saying it will be. I'm not Jesus. Okay. But today might be one of those situations where you walk out of here, you walk out of West Falls Church, you log off Grace Live, and you're like, what? Okay. And I think that's a good thing every now and then, especially because I'm a blue. So here we go. John chapter 1. The word. We're talking about words, aren't we? 
the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. Well, we, we, we know what the word eventually becomes. That's Jesus. Jesus is the word. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among, among us. We have seen his glory. Glory is the full weight of who somebody is, right? We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is the closest relationship with the father. And then what does it say? Has made him known. We are known by our words. We have a hunger to be known and to know others. It's a deep, deep hunger in us. And God has given us the revelation of who he is by his word. And when it says that Jesus Christ is the final word of God, he is the final revelation. It's the final understanding. How do you get into a relationship with Jesus? How do you get into a relationship with, with God? How do you do it? You get into it through words. How do you get into a relationship with anybody? You do it through words. They know you. You know them through the words that are spoken. So when it says here the word become flesh, it's telling us that God takes on a body so that we can fully know who he is. And he comes and he speaks words. We're like, yes, that's how I know you. You get into a relationship with anybody by the words they speak and the words you speak by communicating back and forth. That's how important it is. And so that's why it says we know God because the word has come. Now that's what this series is all about. We're going to gain a deeper understanding of ourselves and of other people through lots and lots of words. We gain an understanding about God because of lots and lots and lots of words that are in the Bible. It is the purpose of the Bible behind all these words. The purpose is primarily Not for you to obey what is written here, but for you to know God. And as a result of knowing God, you will automatically want to fall in line with what's written here. But the purpose of this is not to obey the commands. The purpose of all these words is what John 1 says, so that we could know God. Knowing God, having a relationship with God is what it's all about. But so often we are so wired. The Pharisees did this all the time. They put the cart before the horse. We can do that. We're inclined to do it as human beings. We're like, oh, it's just about a bunch of do this and don't do that. No, 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 no. The primary thing is to have a relationship with God. We talk about salvation in church all the time, right? Salvation. How do you get saved? It's not that you obey what's here and that's transactional and God says, here you go. I'm going to use these in a minute, but here you go. There's salvation for you. It's a Twinkie. No, 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 no. Salvation is because you have a restored relationship with God. And us falling in alignment is a result of the relationship. This is really important. It seems nitpicky, but I'm a blue. Okay? Lots and lots of words. We enter into a relationship with Jesus through words. Now, if you saw me holding a cup of coffee, you saw me holding a cup of coffee, okay, Grace Life? You saw me holding a cup. You might say, well, John likes coffee. Maybe John loves coffee. Maybe John is a coffee addict. And that's what you, that's what you observe. And so that's what you concluded. But you could also walk up to me and speak words to me. And you could say, hey, John, I see you really love coffee. And I would say, I hate coffee. I'm holding this for a friend of mine. And this is true. I don't like coffee. I haven't learned to, I haven't learned to like coffee. There's something wrong with me. I know some of you are like, you're crazy, man. How can you not like coffee? I don't like coffee. I don't like tea. What's wrong with me? I don't know, but I don't like it. I don't like it. You could, you could conclude all kinds of things about me, but if you walked up to me and you now have my word, 
Now you have clarification. Jesus Christ brings us clarification because he is the word. And the purpose of all the words that we have in the Bible is to know God. And out of that relationship with God, then our words begin to fall in line with who God is. And our behaviors do everything you do, word and deed, should be done for the glory of God. That's because we have a relationship with God, not a relationship with the do's and the don'ts of the Bible. It's so key, so important. Now, I sent out a clip this past week, and I know many of you, like, there's over 1,200 people now following those text messages, which is so cool. And I sent out this really great clip this past week from The Office. Again, I've never watched The Office before, but I do watch the clips because they're hilarious. And I sent out a clip this past week of Kevin Malone, for you Office fans, I think that's his name, Kevin Malone, and he decided one day to use a minimum amount of words. So in The Office, he's like speaking very, very few words, just the most minimum amount of words. And because of that, they have a big meeting with him. It's like, we have no idea what you're talking about. You're confusing us. You're confusing. At one point, he talks about seeing the world. And the guy says, are you saying you want to go to see world like with Shamu? Or you say you want to go see the world? So if we don't use enough words, if our words are somehow disjointed or they're not enough, we're going to confuse people. So we need to speak words. Now, here's what we're told about God's word. I mean, think about this. God's word. Just a f- couple highlights. God's word guides us. Lights our path. means it gives us direction. It's a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It cleanses us. How does this cleanse us? This cleanses us. It washes us. It sanctifies us. It frees us. And especially today, it heals us. Now, how does this accomplish all of those things? Right? Do I just like put it on my head and all those things happen? Do I read all all of that? No, no, no. It happens because the word is the revelation of God and I'm now in a relationship with God because I have his word and I know who he is. I'm like, I want to be in a relationship with you because I've read the revelation of who you are. Through your words, I now know you. And because of that relationship has been restored, I'm healed. My path is lit for me. I know what you're thinking. I know what you do. That is the power of words. And there's a very interesting verse, 2 Corinthians 3.6. It says, the letter of the law kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, what in the world does that mean? The letter. What's in here can kill you but the Spirit gives life. There's a big difference. There's a big difference between knowing the letters in this book and knowing the God who created the letters. There's a big difference between knowing the letters in this book, and we all should. Why? Because it tells us who God is, because it's a revelation of God. My word is how you know me. Your word is how I know you. This is how we know God. What other way are you going to know God? through words, through communication. This is God communicating to us. Jesus is the ultimate communication from God to us. It's how anybody, it's so practical, it's so practical. He's the logos that's come down from God. It's a Greek word in John 1. It means it's logical. Logos is where we get the word logic. It makes sense. He makes sense of life. Logical, practical. All of us in this room, you're in a relationship with somebody through words. If your words are honest and true, and you're being yourself and they're being themselves, then you have a strong relationship. If not, you have something that's not a strong relationship. Herman Melville, great author, right? He, uh, he, he wrote a, a number of books. And there was a young guy who was a writer. And one day a publishing company came to him and said, we would like you to turn one of Melville's books, Herman Melville's books, into a screenplay. And the young guy says, well, I, 
I haven't even read the book. And so the publishing company boss said, go home, <laughs> read it over the weekend, come back, tell me whether or not you want to do this because, because we think you're the guy to do it. The guy said, okay. He went home. He read most of it, got a handle. He says, yeah, I would really like to do this. He came back and says, I'll do it. He says, okay, uh, you've got whatever. You have a number of months to, you know, to read and study. With it. So what he did for a bunch of months together is he read over and over and over again, not only the Melville's work that he was doing on this one thing that he was turning into a screenplay, but he read about Melville. When he read his words, he read his words over and over, underlined it, wore pages out, read it, read it, read it, read it, read it. And then one day he burst into the publishing company to the boss and he says, I am Herman Melville. Because he had gone so deep. This, if you read it over and over again and you don't see the letters, but you see the God who created the letters and you realize the purpose is to know him, that this is a revelation and you think and you ponder. You know what blues love to do? They love to take the Bible and underline it. And if they have all those little highlighters, they like to highlight all color coding and stuff like that, right? But you have so immersed yourself in the person, not the rules, but the person of the work that you are so tight in your relationship with God that the rest of your life falls in line. It's not about obeying commands. It's about being in a deep relationship. And the Pharisees didn't see that. And that's the problem that Jesus had with these religious leaders so often. They're like, Jesus, we saw your disciples picking grain on the Sabbath. What are you doing? It's like, what do you mean? Jesus, you, you healed somebody on the Sabbath. That's wrong. Like, you're missing the whole point. You're missing the point. I'm going to try to illustrate it this way. If somewhere in the Bible, like it was commanded to us that we should push, like push. Like if you're a follower of God and you believe in the Bible, you should push. Are you pushing? I'm pushing. They're not pushing. There's a bunch of people who aren't pushing. And because they're not pushing, they must be out of step with God because we all need to push. We got to make sure people are pushing. Now, God says to us, well, the reason I want you to push like a CPR compression. Push. Not for push sake. It's because when you compress in a CPR exercise, you're pumping blood into the heart and oxygen to the brain. It's really about restoring life. So the Pharisees say, what are you doing? Eating on the Sabbath. What are you doing? Picking the, what are you doing? Doing good things for people on the Sabbath. What is the purpose? And so if we get all caught up in the rules, but not the rule maker, we're going to twist things and we're going to have a deep understanding, deep misunderstanding of what is going on there. Now, words are food and we have a word hunger. I want to read you a couple of proverbs here. Really important. Okay. From the fruit of their mouth, a person's stomach is filled. That's a very interesting. From the fruit of their mouth, a person's stomach is filled. With the harvest of their lips, they are satisfied. Let's stop right there. From the fruit of the mouth. So what it's saying is that our words are food. And that our words are not only filling up the, the ears of the hearer, but it says right here, right, from the fruit of their mouth, with the harvest of their lips, they are satisfied. So the person speaking it, their life is filled and satisfied by the very words they speak. It goes two ways. We totally understand the part about the hearer, right? People hear words. And I know we've said this before. It's, it's very popular to say sticks and stones can, you know, whatever, break my bones, but words can never hurt me. And that's just so ridiculous. So ridiculous to say, it doesn't matter what anybody says about you. Do whatever you want. You don't live that way. You can't live that way. Right? So I'm a preacher. 
If people only said, if people said, you just stink as a preacher, if that was 100% of what everybody said, I would no longer be a preacher, right? Because we, at some point, somebody needs to come along and say, you're all right, right? <laughs> Same thing, whatever you do in life. There was a young boy, church, and um, he was leaving church, and in this particular church, the preacher always stood at the door in the back or whatever, shaking hands, shaking hands. And this young boy, about 10 years old, came out, shook the preacher's hand. He looked up at that preacher and said, Preacher, when I get older, I'm going to be really rich, and I'm going to give you all my money. Man, that preacher, big smile. That's beautiful. You know, it really is. That's nice. You can, it's okay. You can say, that's great. And he's like, big smile. Said, that is awesome. Thank you so much, young man. Why would you, why would you do that? And he said, because my daddy says, you're the poorest preacher he's ever seen in his life. <laughs> we need words, but the words we speak fill our own life. That's what it's saying. It doesn't just fill the ears of the hearer. It fills the very life of the speaker. Whoa, now that's taking it to another level. I can't just say, oh, I'll speak the words and whatever. I messed their life up. That's just them. That's all on them. I'm messing my life up. I'm messing my life up. That takes it deeper. Proverbs 12, 14. For, again, from the fruit of their lips, people are filled with good things. From the fruit of my lips, I'm filled with good. I speak and my life is filled with good things if they're wise or bad things if they're not. The soothing tongue is a tree of life. That takes us all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. The tree of life, the garden, paradise. That I should speak words that are in keeping with what was going on in the Garden of Eden in paradise. And look at this one, 12, 18. The tongue of the wise brings healing. The tongue of the wise brings healing. Finally, Proverbs 16, 24. We could keep going. <laughs> Gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul, healing to the bones. Now listen, wisdom. Book of Proverbs is all about wisdom. It's all about words. It's all about wisdom. It's all about words. God is wisdom. We're told that wisdom created the world. We're told God created the world. We're told wisdom created the world. So having a relationship with wisdom means having a relationship with God. God is wisdom. He is the wisdom that has come down. Wisdom is God. When I'm in a relationship with God, I'm in a relationship with wisdom. And as a result of that relationship, I will begin to speak wise words. I can't be in a true, as James says in James 1.26, I can't be in a deep, awesome, life-transforming relationship with God and not have my mouth transformed. And as my mouth is transformed... It not only transforms the hearer, it transforms me as the speaker because I am bringing myself in alignment with Almighty God and I begin to speak healing words because I've been vitally connected with God, which is what Proverbs is all about. If you know God in that way, you will never be the same. That relationship continually transforms your life and transforms your words and the words of your mouth can heal other people. Why? How? Because you're in a relationship with the God behind the letters of the words. You know the creator of the letters. The Bible says he's the alpha and the omega. That's the alphabet. He's the alpha and the omega. Why do you think it says that? Because he is the creator of the words. He's the entire alphabet for us. He is words. And that's how we know him. All of this is so that we would know him. The purpose of all the words in the Bible is to have a relationship with God, not a relationship with his commands. It's deeper, deeper, deeper than that. So here's a fill in the blank for you. If you're not speaking, you're starving. If, you're not, if words are food, if you're not speaking, you're starving. This is why solitary confinement is such a difficult, difficult thing. It's like torture. Solitary confinement is torture. People have heart problems when they're in solitary confinement. They start having hallucinations. They start shaking. They develop all kinds of issues. 
Vivek Murthy, who is the former U.S. Surgeon General, says, America, and we all know this because we watch the news, we have a big addiction problem in America. There's an obsession with all kinds of things. We have a big addiction problem. He says, we don't have an addiction problem. We have a connection problem. Listen to this, quote, we will not solve the addiction problem in America if we don't address social connection. So I said this last week, you want to have a great marriage? If you weren't here last week, here you go. Here's the one key thing to a great marriage, how you communicate in those few brief moments where you have a disagreement. How the, what are the words you use? Now, there is an organ, there's an organization that's working with gang members, trying to get them out. I mean, some of these, some of these, uh, young guys, for the most part, right? They started in gangs when they were 10 years old. Tough stuff. But they're having great success. And so I was very interested. Well, how are they having great success? They do two things. Both of them are connected to the words they speak. They're teaching them a new way to speak. It's, it's connection. And it's having an amazing way. It's how we speak. It's how, it's how I know you and how you are known to me is the words that we speak. That's why solitary confinement is such torture. Because the words have been cut off. In Psalm 32, David says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Because David needed to confess something. He needed to get honest with God and other people about who he really was. And we're scared to do that. We go in hiding. But he needed to speak. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God, why have you, why have you gone silent on me? Jesus, all he had known his entire life is that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a divine community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were in constant communication with each other. Now, all of a sudden, things go silent, and that is agonizing. So, finally, here, speak wise words. We need to speak wise words. We speak wise words through a relationship. Words are food, and if words are food, we are what we eat, and we are what we speak, and so, therefore, we need to speak wise words. Now, let's get to the uh, Twinkies and bananas here. Does anybody like Twinkies? Does, I'm going to toss some. Oh, I see, I see those. I'm going to try to make it to you. They're a little, okay. Okay, come on. Come on. They, they go pretty, pretty, they're pretty heavy. Anybody? Oh, right here, right here. There you go. Okay, anybody over here? I just haven't shown any love to this side of the room. All right. Okay. Okay, okay. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. All right. Sorry. All right. How about bananas? Anybody help? Oh, ho, 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 ho. Bananas. There we go. There we go. Don't let them bruise. Don't let them bruise. There we go. Huh? You can eat right in here. Come on. Watch it. Watch your head. If somebody's sleeping around you, tell them to be careful. Okay. These can hurt you. I missed you. Come on. Come on. That's all right. Okay. There you go. Listen. Uh, why does God tell us not, not to gossip and not to say words that are divisive or impatient or rude, right? I, I have a choice. Like, so, okay, gossip. Gossip is like a Twinkie, man. You know what I'm saying? It just goes, it feels good. It goes down good, but it makes me spit. It's sick, right? I speak words that make me sick. It feels good. It tastes good. I'm not even sure, for those of you eating a Twinkie right now, I'm not even sure this is food. I don't know what it is. I don't... I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. But when we speak words, it might feel good to lash out at somebody. It might feel good to do those things. Okay, it might feel good. But it also might make you sick, and so you should speak wise words. Why? Because God commands you not to gossip or do all the other things? No, because you're in a relationship with Almighty God, and God doesn't do that, and it changes your words. It changes your words. So we should speak words of wisdom, of patience, of love, of graciousness. The Bible says we should speak words that are seasoned with salt. Now, that sounds like food. The words you speak not only affect the hearers, it affects you. It fills your own life up. And so you have to be in a relationship with God to transform your words. I played basketball a lot of my life. And I'm a blue, so I'm not much of a talker. 
But uh, I noticed that as I got to know guys, after a while, and they know, oh, he's, he's a preacher. And there's a lot of language on a basketball court, you know what I'm saying? A lot of language. But I noticed this happened my entire life. Once people knew who I was, either I told them, they asked me, what do you do? They would, they would like, cuss badly on the court, and they would come to me and say, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and this happened all the time. Why? Because they knew me. It affected their words because they knew me. Same thing with our relationship with God. Twinkies, Twinkies and banana, who God is. You can't say, if you're in the habit of saying, I'm such a loser, I'm so stupid, God doesn't have a plan for my life, I'm ugly, I'm unlovable, then what you're saying is God is a loser and that God is unlovable and God doesn't have a good plan. Why? Because you've been created in the image of God. If you say those words about yourself or other people, it's because your relationship with God is not strong enough. You have not understood the God behind the letters that are in the Bible. Psalm 107 says, he sent his word and healed them. For the blues who are keeping track of time, I need you to know that I'm going to go a couple minutes over today. (laughs) But I I want to finish something off. The knowledge of God and who he is. I want to try to do something, and this is the part that's going to be a little bit of a stretch for some of us. Right, we're going to think about this. And I want to caveat this by saying there's some great scholars and they're kind of on different, different sides, but I'm talking about something that I've noodled over for years, really thought about, and I've come to a place on something of understanding the God behind the letters, at least I think I have. Okay? And so what I ask, if you want to send me an email after I do this next section, that you would wait three or four days and then send me the email. Just out of respect for the blues. Let's just noodle this over, Okay. He sent his word and he healed us. Okay, so uh, this past week, Monday was Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah uh, is an important day in the Jewish calendar. It begins the 10 days of all. It's a time of repentance. And in Rosh Hashanah, they read Genesis 22, which I'm getting ready to read to you, Genesis 22. And it all culminates on this Wednesday, which is Yom Kippur, which is the, is the highest holy day in the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur. It's a day of atonement. It's a day of forgiveness. It's a day of repentance. It's, it's, it's a really important day. And they read Genesis 22. I'm going to read it to you now. Some people believe it's one of the, if not the most important stories in the Jewish life. Here we go. After these things, God tested Abraham. Now, let me, let me just stop right there and give you some background if you're not familiar with this story. Okay, finally, after many, 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 many years of infertility, Abraham and his wife Sarah have a child. They have a son, and his name is Isaac. Isaac means laughter because they were so old. They were so like, my gosh, I can't believe it. She's in a wheelchair giving birth. So it's so old, so old. But after all years, so this is great. This is awesome. And God said, I'm going to make you a great and mighty nation. I'm gonna, you're going to have all kinds of descendants. But they didn't have any kids. And so, Okay, so he has kids. So God tests him. He says, and Abraham says, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, and then whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Moriah is the same hill where Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. And offer him there as a burnt offering. Kill him, sacrifice to me on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. And so he goes. And at the end of the verse, it says, so Abraham returned. After he does this, I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. With his young men, and they arose, and they went together to Beersheba. He's coming down off of the mountain. He goes back to Beersheba. That's going to be important in just a second. I've read this story all my life, and it inspired me. Because God says to Abraham, hey, do something. It's very difficult to do. Do something that in some ways is illogical, right? You said, you, I'm, going to, I'm going to have all kinds of descendants in here. What's going on here? But he was obedient. 
And because he was so obedient, I'm like, yes, that's held up as an example. Like, I want to be obedient like Abraham, to have that level of obedience. He gets up in the morning, and all the scholars agree to this, that he almost mindlessly, he doesn't talk to anybody, he just gets up early, he gets the wood, he saddles the donkey, and he, although he has lots of servants, he does it all himself, and he treks off for three days, and three days of silence, plodding along almost robotically. He goes up the mountain with his son. Now, his son, many people think his son is really young. He's not. Scholars would tell you he's anywhere from the age of 20 to 37. A lot of people think he's 37 years old at this point because you can check the timeline on that. So he's a full-grown man, and he's carrying all this wood, which he's going to put down an altar, and he's going to be consumed by it, right? So they're going up the mountain. He gets up the mountain, and he ties his son up, ropes him, puts him on top of all the wood, gets the knife, and then an angel says, whoa, Abraham, don't do that. I've read all my life. I thought, yeah, I hope I can be obedient like that. That is really cool. And then I was in seminary. And one day the professor asked us to act this out. And so there's a guy in our seminary, he's about 75 years old, another student of mine, a friend of mine, and, uh, and, and, a, and a young guy. And they went down to the kitchen, they got a big old knife, and they found some rope, and we went up to the chapel, and they got everything off the altar in the chapel, and, and the older guy ties up the younger guy, and he puts him up on the altar, and he grabs the knife, and I said, uh-oh, all of a sudden I'm not okay with this. Like, if your father did that to you, would that mess you up for the rest of your life? I'm just asking. <laughs> would there be a problem the rest of your life? So I had three options. I see it this way, three options. I can, number one, have blind obedience, and I can just say, I know it's illogical, but because Abraham was obedient, that it's all good. I know God is totally against child sacrifice. He's against killing anybody, and that's what this is, but he was obedient, so it's all good. That's option one. Option two is, this is a problem. (laughs) Like, there's some cool stuff in God's Word. There's some really important things in God's Word, which we talk about all the time, but this is a weird thing, and so I just choose to say, this is weird, written by people who have a misunderstanding or people who are brutal or whatever it might be, and I put it aside, and now I stand above God's Word and I say, you know, I'll pick and choose what I like and what I don't like. That's option two, and that has some problems to it. Or number three, I could say, you know what? God's actually put this in here, and I've been noodling away on this thing for about 20 years. God's put this in there because he wants me to go deeper in my relationship with him. He wants me to see the the God behind the letters. He wants me to be that guy who ran in and shouted, I am Herman Melville. And God wants me to think, think, think deeply. All right, so here's one of the things. Right at the beginning, it says God is testing Abraham. He's testing. That should be a sign to us right away, testing. Some of us don't like, oh, I don't like what God testing. That's not good. I don't appreciate a God who tests me. (laughs) But you don't live. You don't live without tests. So the person doing surgery on you, you want them to have a lot of tests? Yes, you do. You don't want to go into the hospital and somebody, have you done surgery? No, I just walked in today. I said I want to do a surgery. We have tests because it shows have we been paying attention. You want the person piloting the plane to have lots of tests continually. You want your accountant to have lots of tests continually. We love tests. You wouldn't move out of your house if you didn't have lots of tests going on around you. That's just the reality. So whether you like it or not, we need tests because it shows are we paying attention. And what we see here is Abraham 
Is he paying attention? God is giving him a test. He leaves early in the morning. He's almost acting robotic. He has kind of mindless obedience. He's not questioning God. He's not saying, wait a minute. I mean, I, you know, you're not... I remember Abel, when Cain kills Abel, and his blood is crying out to the ground, and it's a great injustice. He doesn't question God at all. He's just mindless. He doesn't talk to his wife. What do you think his wife would say if he would talk to her? You notice how it is sometimes when you want to do something, and you know if you talk to somebody else, they're going to tell you no? So he gets up early and leaves in the morning, so she doesn't tell him no. And then he's three days in silence. The Bible has a principle out of the mouth of two or three witnesses. Something is confirmed. There's no words, no discussion, there's no dialogue. Here's something really important to notice. Up until this point, Abraham has been speaking directly to God. God and Abraham have been sharing lots of words together. Like God even sat down and had a meal with Abraham. You can read all about this in Genesis. Lots and lots of words have been shared, which means Abraham should really, really know God because all of these words have been shared with each other. But from this point, at the beginning of Genesis, when God speaks directly to him until Abraham takes his son Isaac on the mountain, holds the knife up, no longer does God ever speak to him again. Only an angel speaks to him. Only an intermediary speaks to him. Only God's assistant speaks to him. He never, ever, ever again speaks directly to God. It's weird. It's weird. He and God had had a very, very close relationship. When he comes down the mountain, his wife Sarah, who he's been married to for so long, she's in Hebron, he goes to Beersheba and he settles there. He makes his home there. They separate. So it appears as if his relationship with God has been fractured and his relationship with his wife has been fractured. We're told specifically that he goes up on the mountain with Isaac, but we're no indication that he comes down the mountain with Isaac. And we're told that Isaac goes to the very region where his half-brother, estranged brother Ishmael lives. And maybe some scholars believe that he goes and lives with Ishmael. And even though he's old enough, to figure out who his own wife is, his father, which we have no recorded conversations ever again between Abraham and Isaac, his father decides who he'll get as a wife. And Isaac, who loves his mother, Sarah, doesn't even, as far as we know, show up at her funeral. Abraham has to travel from Beersheba to Hebron for her funeral, and Isaac doesn't even show up. His relationship with God is fractured. His relationship with his family is fractured. Why is all of this happening? He is blessed for his obedience. And I'm just wondering to myself, did he pass the test of obedience but fail the test of understanding the God behind the letters? Is that what the test is really all about? Did God intend for him to never do it in the first place? Did God intend for Abraham to say to God, God, that is not you because your word says you abhor child sacrifice. It's an abomination to you. That's not you. Pass the test. I know who you are. Do you know the letters or do you know the God behind the letters? Did he pass the test or did he fail the test? He went silent. How about Jacob? God gave Jacob a command too. Jacob's wrestling with God. Jacob, his name is Deceiver. He's a deceiver. He's blown apart relationships. All People can't stand him. Nobody wants him blessed. He is a bad, 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 bad person. And one night God comes and wrestles with him and God says, Jacob, let me go. And Jacob defies the command of God. He says, I will not let you go. Because here's what I know about you, God, as bad as I am, how much of a failure I am, and how everybody around me can't stand me because I'm such a deceiver, and I've swindled so many people. Here's what I know about you, God. You are a God that loves me. In spite of all my failures, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, in spite of my failures, you would die for me, and I know that you want to bless me. You want to bless me, so I'm hanging on, and God blesses him. And how about Moses in Exodus? 
after the children of Israel make this golden calf and they're worshiping the calf, right? God says, that's it. And he says to Moses, Moses, get out of my way. Leave me alone. I'm going to destroy these people and I'm going to make you into a great nation. And Moses is probably a red and he loves obedience and they're not obedient. And so he's appealing to even Moses' own pride by saying, I'll make you a great nation. And Moses says, no way. I won't do it. You will not do this thing because you are not a destroyer. You're a restorer. I know you, God. That's who you are. How well do we know God? And I'm just wondering, did Abraham pass the test of obedience and fail the test of understanding who God is, the purpose of all the words in the first place? Well, Jacob, Jacob out of that experience is saying, no, God, I'm not going to let you go even though you've commanded me to do it. God says to Jacob after he blesses him, I'm changing your name from deceiver. I'm changing your name to Israel. And you know what the name Israel means? One who wrestles with God. Will you wrestle with God not to know the letters, but to know the purpose of the letters and the God behind the letters? Is that you? Is that you? Is that what you want to do? Because our words will only be transformed into words of wisdom and healing if we're in a relationship with the God of the Bible, not the letters of the Bible. Now, I'd like us to end the same way we do every single week, Psalm 1914. Can we all say them together, please? Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer.